Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox, and with me in D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? Doing good. Yeah, sorry I was a little bit late this morning. I ran into a traffic jam at Starbucks. I I got this Starbucks up my street where there's one employee who works there where you I can walk in the front door and I just the fact that she's there means that everything is going to be like 10 minutes slower than it normally <laughs> is. I think I should probably just turn around and walk out when I see that she's there. But yeah. I was hungry, so I had to uh, do it. And so then, of course, like she fucks everything up, and then I end up having to wait. And So anyways, sorry for uh, pushing back our call time today. No, no problem. I was late, too, so it was perfect. Uh, great, great. Um, we've got a bunch of emails from listeners today, so I guess uh, maybe we should just dive right in. Sure, let's do it. All right. So the first one is uh, an update from Andre in Philly. We talked about some of Andre's uh, issues last time, a couple times ago. I don't know. Anyway, Andre says, uh, I wanted to say thank you for taking the time to discuss and answer my questions on the most recent podcast. I believe you correctly diagnosed the reason for me performing so poorly after after prep testing much higher. I'm now trying to implement your suggestions to slow down and carefully analyze each logical reasoning passage. Although I already knew I should do that, I'm now consciously making myself identify the conclusion, premises, and the bullshit logic for each passage. My last four prep tests have been 165, 162, 166, and a 162. Again, just wanted to say thank you. Best, Andre from Philly. that's awful nice. I don't know what else to say about that. Oh, I think it's good. And I think it actually reflects something that happens a lot of times. And that is that uh, we talk about slowing down and analyzing the passage. And I think a lot of people get that and they agree with it. But then even when you've just talked about it, when they do a question, they either forget or kind of feel like they've done it even though they haven't done it yeah and so they identify the conclusion most likely maybe find the premises and then sort of say oh yeah okay and then go into the question then afterward i asked so did you guys find the problem before we you went into the answer choices even if they got it right because a lot of times people can get the right answer even if they haven't done that but they're not really developing the right process and a lot of times they say uh you know i guess i really didn't do that even though we just talked about it. So there's something about making it a habit or making it something that you're consciously, as he said, doing it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, just because you're getting it right doesn't mean you did the question really the best possible way. And um, it is possible to go into the answer choices without a good prediction and find the right answer frequently. But uh, it's just not the most efficient way and it's also not the most reliable way uh, it's much better to cover those answer choices up and try to make those predictions before you go into the answer choices. Um, specifically, I think I would like to call out main conclusion questions. Um, I'm amazed how often people will, you know, if if you're missing a lot of main conclusion questions or if you're not, it's just those those questions I think are like a really good bellwether for whether people are doing the process properly or not. Um, 
because I'm, I'm just surprised at how many times I'll ask a student, you know, what was the conclusion and they'll, they'll miss that even if it's not a main conclusion question, but they'll just, they've read the argument. They think they've taken their time with it and I'll say, okay, so what's the conclusion of that argument? And they'll just spout back one of the premises. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, wait a minute now. That's obvious. That's not the conclusion because the thing you just said supports something else in the passage, which means that that's uh, the conclusion is this other thing. And how can you answer the question if you don't really know what the argument's trying to prove? Yeah. So I feel like that's maybe like a canary in the coal mine there for people. If you find yourself missing a lot of those main conclusion questions, then it's almost certain that you need to slow down and spend more time with the argument and figure out what the premises are and figure out what the conclusion is. Well, what I think is interesting is when people get conclusion questions right um, and they didn't do the rigorous process of a well, it's not even that rigorous, but they didn't take the time to consciously identify exactly where the conclusion is in the argument. And maybe, like you said, they even misidentified it as the last clause, which turns out to be a premise or something like that. And then they get the right answer, and I think they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, I figured it out anyways. And I, I think that's a situation where their intuition sort of saved them, but they're not developing... A systematic way of guaranteeing that they're going to get it right every time in the future. It's just sort of like, did your intuition save you then and you felt like that was the main point and it kind of clicked? Or on another occasion, it doesn't click, as opposed to having a de- definitive way of finding that answer and knowing that it's correct 100% of the time. Yeah, that's not going to be a reliable method, and it's also not going to be a very fast method. Um, main conclusion questions more than any other question you you have to just tell the makers of the test what you're looking for in the answer choices you've got to mm-hmm. you got to cover up those answer choices and say well the main conclusion of the argument was xyz then go down into the answer choices armed with that prediction if you're not doing that then the wrong answers are going to trap you and confuse you and waste your time and yeah sometimes you're going to maybe be able to figure it out but um, many times they're, they're, they're good at writing those wrong answer choices. And mm-hmm. so many times they're going to be able to trick you into picking the wrong answer if you do it that way. Not to mention it just takes a lot longer. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we've talked about this many times on the show already, but the reason why we're able to go fast through the test is that we just don't need to spend very much time on the answer choices. Mm-hmm. Right. We've got these exactly. strong predictions. And once we have the strong prediction, then you just cut right through the the answer choices. They, they don't they can't touch you. You know, they can't bother you um, mm-hmm. because you know what you're looking for. So you just you've got high standards. So you don't um, you don't get suckered in to wasting time and potentially missing questions. Yeah. Um. Okay, moving right along. I'm going to paraphrase this one because it's kind of long, so bear with me. I'm going to skim through it. Andrew is asking, uh, Hey guys, I've been listening to your podcast quite a bit. Wanted to reach out in search of some guidance or tips. Here's a brief overview of the situation. It's not really a brief overview. I guess in the lawyer world it might be brief, but this is not very brief. Um, Andrew says... Loyola University, top choice for law school is Iowa, 
3.14 GPA, and he's super worried about it, says it's keeping him up at night. Um, there's a course in undergrad that he did her- tor- terribly in and had to retake it, and um, he's all, you know, bound up about what that's going to do to his GPA once he converts it through the credential assembly service and all that stuff. Um, okay, so that's, you know, that's water under the bridge. LSAT took it last year with a complete lack of preparation and got a 155. Um, that's good news and bad news, I guess. Yeah. Bad news, why are you taking the test with no preparation? Good news, 155 is a hell of a place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, Going to retake it on October 3rd. Signed up for a course, doesn't say which one, and has been self-studying along with the course. Says he's mastering sections without time and then adding time factors in later, taking complete practice tests. Scoring 165 to 172 on the practice tests. Okay, that's good. Fairly strong writer. I will have a compelling personal statement. Okay, good. You should. Everyone should. In regard to extracurricular activities, I played soccer all four years with leadership role. Good. President of a student advisory committee. Good. Other various leadership positions, good. Letters of recommendations, blah, blah, blah. Good. Um, Mentions here, my letters of recommendation are from a professor, associate dean, assistant soccer coach, and a close family friend who's an attorney, which that one is totally not appropriate. Um, I don't know exactly which ones I will have sent in yet. I'm familiar with the profession as my uncles and dad are all attorneys. Okay, here's the question. I just wanted to reach out to you guys and possibly get some feedback as to what you think my chances of gaining admission to Iowa are, as well as any tips to improve upon some of the weak points of my application. I know you're busy. Really appreciate any insights you can provide. Thanks, Andrew. All right, cool. I think there's a couple things we can talk about. Yeah. Go ahead. All right, so Iowa is a... Pretty good law school. It's ranked uh, 22 in the nation, uh, according to U.S. News and World Report ranking. The median LSAT is 162, and the median GPA is 3.64. Okay. So he has a he's been scoring around 167 or so. Yeah. Um, which puts him well above the median if he yeah. gets close to that. His GPA is under the median, of course, which is like 0.5 below but i don't think that's as important at a 22 rank school um from what i remember the top 14 are the ones that are caring more about gpa and pretty much below that they're caring more about lsat of course that's depends on every school but um i think his lsat's going to carry more weight here and so i think he has a pretty good chance of getting in what do you think yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about Iowa specifically. The, f- the first thing that I would say to Andrew and to everyone else, we get a lot of questions like this, and we appreciate all the questions we get, but this is all public information um, that you can really Google. If you want to go to Iowa, all you have to do is Google Iowa, LSAT, and GPA ranges, and you're going to get back a lot of data um, about, or a lot of statistics about LSAT and GPA ranges from Iowa. So, you know, and and not to be 100% cynical about things, but 
they're making the bulk of their decisions based on LSAT and GPA, uh, especially LSAT. And so I think for Andrew, all he really needs to do is look up their GPA ranges and look up their LSAT ranges. And if, if he's in those ranges, then he's probably going to get in. And if he's not in those ranges, then he's probably not going to get in. Yeah. And it's, it's almost as simple as that. Now he's going to be what we might call a splitter. I think his GPA is probably going to be below the 25th percentile at Iowa would be Mm -hmm. my guess. But it sounds like his LSAT has a pretty good chance of being above the 75th percentile LSAT. Oh, you know what? I just, I, I totally missed, I totally missed those, and they are here. Uh, the 75th percentile is 164. So yeah. He's well above that. Yeah. I think that's going to be a slam dunk. The 25th percentile for GPA is 3.46. Uh, so he's way below the 25th percentile GPA, which sucks. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> There's, mm-hmm. There are going to be many other applicants who have way better grades than Andrew does. Yeah. Um, but... If his LSAT score is well above the 75th percentile, then you know he's got a way better LSAT score than almost all the other applicants do. So he's great on one and he's bad on the other, and in the wash it probably comes out that he gets in, is my guess. Yeah, one thing about this is I would want to know... I, I'm looking back here and I can't tell exactly. I would want to know what his GPA was for his last two years. <laughs> Um, if it was substantially higher and that's pulling up his GPA, then they're going to give that a lot more weight than I think his overall of a 3.14. If it's 3.14 over the whole time, then that's a 3.14. But um, that can make a big difference too. I think law schools are interested in who you are now, not who you were, especially at the beginning of your undergrad. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, they're going to look at that more closely when you've already when your numbers are sort of close mm-hmm. they're, they're not going to look at that super closely if your numbers are not in anywhere in the range <laughs> then it's just not going to care yeah but especially when you've got the high lsat score mm-hmm. the high lsat score is going to get them interested i would think and yeah absolutely if he writes an addendum and says hey you know the last two years i got a 3.5 and it made up for my indiscretions in my first couple years Uh, or if he was sick if there was a bad semester he can explain that in an addendum Um, the he's got one course that he says he'd love to forget about you know maybe you write an addendum about that semester what was going on that semester what was going on in that course Mm -hmm. and just explain that hey this was an anomaly and if you look at my grades for the next two years after that course you'll see that i you know did much better for whatever reason um, he also doesn't mention his major, I don't think. And, you know, major would, would, would make a big difference if he was studying engineering or something, uh, 3.14 in engineering might be a great GPA. Yeah. Um, so that's another factor that he might want to mention if, if he was studying something, um, kind of hard science So one thing I just did, absolutely. Sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. Um, while, uh, just so people can know how to do this, all you have to do is Google, like Nathan was saying, LSAT, GPA, and calculator. And the first search result is going to take you to LSAC.org's official calculator. There are a bunch of other calculators out there. Some people argue it might be more accurate. But I wouldn't doubt the validity of this one on LSAC.org. Yeah. And I went ahead and put in his GPA, uh, 3.14, 
and then I put 167. I We could actually play with that number a little bit, give them a little lower LSAT score. But in any case, with a 167 at Iowa, according to this, they predict your likelihood. It's the third column over. It's predicting his likelihood is between 80 and 90%. Sure. Uh, oh, very high. Yeah, that sounds that sounds totally right. Okay, so that's the calculator on LSAC.org, mm -hmm. and it's easy to find. You just searched for LSAT GPA calculator? Calculator, and it's the first one. LSAT GPA calculator. Look for that on LSAC.org, and then you can geek out all you want with playing with different numbers and seeing how that affects your chances of getting in. Um, I am curious, what's it, if he, let's say he gets a 164. Okay. What's that do? Okay, 164 would decrease his chances. He would have a 60 to 70% chance. Wow, he was 80 to 90 with a 167, mm -hmm. and now he's 60 to 70 with a 164. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, that shows you how, how closely L, um, law schools are looking at LSAT scores. They really, really want LSAT scores, especially a school in that range, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, Iowa... It might be the best school in, um, well, the state of Iowa. It's the best school probably in many states around that area, but it's not University of Chicago, and they want to be, right? They want to be in the top 14. They're fighting to get into the top 14. The way they would crack the top 14 is by admitting a whole bunch of people with really high LSAT scores. That's, that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so... Anyway, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna love Andrew with a 167, and with a 163 or 164, he's gonna be more of like a kind of 50-50. Yeah. So I want I don't want to stress people out with these numbers, but uh, just I was just curious. So I did 165 to see what change that would have. You know, one point from yeah. 164 to 165, and at least according to LSAC.org, that would increase his chances from 60 to 70 percent to 68 to 78 percent. Yeah. So one point. Yeah can make a difference. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it just moves him past so many other applicants, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Remember that the LSAT um, scoring scale is really compressed. The scores only go from 120 to 180, but almost no one gets any scores in the 120s and almost no one gets any scores in the 170s. So the the scale is really more like one four, kind of 140 to 170 is where the vast majority of all students fall. Mm-hmm. So there's only really 30 points kind of operative on the test for most people. For the vast majority of people, there's really like kind of an only a 30-point score range. So yeah, moving up by one or two points on that score range is going to move yourself past just tons of other candidates. Yeah. Um, I would encourage Andrew, and I would encourage everyone else out there, to uh, really stop worrying so much about your chances. <laughs> Yeah, and just devote that time and energy to studying for the LSAT and get yourself a better LSAT score. The really the only thing you can do is get yourself a better LSAT score. So all of this speculating and all of this worrying, um, while I understand it, it is not productive. Same thing with like really worrying about your personal statement, really worrying about your letters of recommendation. These are all things that I think are kind of necessary components of your application, but far from sufficient components of your application. And the thing that's really going to move the needle is just getting one or two more LSAT points. Yeah. So by all means, do a good personal statement. Do a good, get your letters of recommendation in. 
But if you think that those are the things that are going to make a really big difference, I think you're, you're wrong. They're just not going to make nearly as much of a difference as one or two or three more LSAT points. I completely agree. And I think a lot of people will also talk about their experience and say that they have this great experience and they think that everything is looking good on that end. And that's, that's great, but you really should just be focusing on your LSAT score because those things aren't going to do much you don't get a score that's within range at least yeah all all these other factors sure when you have the same lsat and gpa as another candidate then they're really going to give a shit about your extensive volunteer experience but when you have a lower lsat score and or lower gpa than another candidate they're not going to give one damn about your extensive volunteer experience they're going to prefer the candidate that has the higher numbers than you do yeah. So uh, just they're <laughs> they're making their decision based on LSAT and GPA first, and then everything else. I feel like everything else is, you know, at the margins. When we've got a close judgment call, okay, oh wow, you know, this guy played soccer for four years. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's great. That that is not a bad thing, and it's certainly a feather in Andrew's cap. But they're not looking at that stuff very closely until you get yourself into contention and the way you get yourself into contention is with LSAT and GPA. Yeah. And you can't do anything about your GPA at this point. So you better work out on your LSAT. Uh, now that we're preparing for the October LSAT, I occasionally get people asking me, uh, what should I be doing in terms of my applications and so forth? And I usually tell them to do, if they're still studying for the LSAT, I usually tell them to keep focusing on the LSAT. Don't worry about their applications, except for maybe their letters of recommendation because they take time. And so I would probably ask people to write a letter of recommendation. But other than that, you can worry about your personal statement and all that other stuff after. At least I, I think so. Um, granted, if you can't do any more LSAT one night and you want to worry about your personal statement, you can. But I wouldn't feel the need to get that done too uh, as long as you still have more energy to work on the LSAT. Yeah, I mean, I'm amazed when I get uh, people tell me that they that they like, well, I've been, oh yeah, no, I haven't been doing my LSAT so much because I've been really working on my personal statement. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? What? <laughs> that is definitely putting the cart before the horse there. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I give similar advice to, to, um, to what you do, which is I basically tell people, listen, LSAT is the, the most important thing. LSAT is what you should be primarily focused on. I'm not saying study for the LSAT 10 hours a day, but study for the LSAT every day, a little mm-hmm. bit every day. And then on the days when you don't have energy or you've, you've put it in your hour of LSAT prep, right? You've done one timed section and reviewed it. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've put in... 50 minutes, an hour, something like that, and you don't have any more gas in the tank, you know, it's after a long day of work and you're just kind of tired or whatever, that's a perfect time to start checking off some of these other boxes on your application that you need to do. Mm -hmm. Requesting letters of recommendation, requesting transcripts, writing a shitty first draft of your personal statement. Sure, all those things have to happen, Mm -hmm. but I would do them after i have already done all the lsat work i can do for the day yeah 
And I also think you're totally right about the letters of recommendation. That is the one thing where it's really out of your hands and you're depending on other people to get their shit done. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, yeah, I mean, get get the requests in to your professors as soon as possible. I mean, especially professors, because professors like to, you know, go on sabbatical or just generally be flaky about getting documents back out to you. <laughs> so um, sorry to all the professors out there. I don't I'm not personally insulting you. Um, but, you know, those things can move academia <laughs> can move a little slowly. And so. Uh, maybe get those requests out uh, sooner rather than later just so that you can get those letters in the bank. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, personal statement. I mean, you know, the truth is there is no one magic perfect personal statement for you. You could write 10 completely different personal statements. I wrote my personal statement about how much I hate the California lottery. I wrote it in like, <laughs> I wrote it in like three hours. And, you know, edited yeah. it and sent it in. And it was fine. And I could have written about a million other things. Yeah. So that's your, if you're, if you're like finally crafting your personal statement and hoping that that's going to get you in with your 145 LSAT score, that's just not going to get it done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what do you think? Anything else about Andrew's case? Yeah, I would just say one more thing, and that is we did talk about how to find the LSAT GPA calculator, and yeah. you can definitely go play around with those numbers. But when you're studying for the test, I honestly would not worry too much about what your score is. Uh, sometimes people will take a diagnostic, and they'll get a 158, and then they'll take another one, and they'll get a 161, and then they'll take another one, and they'll get a 160, and they'll say, Oh no, I'm slipping back. I'm going down, yeah. Everything is, I just don't know if I'm making any progress and I feel so frustrated because I've been studying so long, especially this last week. I put in so many hours and then I went and took a test and it went down. And I wouldn't really worry about the score itself. I would focus in on how many questions did you answer? How many of those did you get right? What's your accuracy rate of the ones you missed? Why do you think you missed them? Were you rushing? Or do you fundamentally not understand that question? Uh, there's a lot more to your studies than the score. But it's, of course, it's something that's very easy to focus on, which is why I think people do. But you really want to resist that temptation and just focus on, are you approaching the questions in the right way? And are you approaching the, the timed sections in the right way in the sense that you're you're focusing on doing them well as opposed to doing them quickly stuff that we talk about a lot but it, it's a little bit different of a focus than the score itself yeah um it is easy to get addicted to just the the ups and downs like the the, the adrenaline rush of adding up your score and seeing what your score is today mm-hmm. it's a little bit like uh pulling the lever on a slot machine though you know there's there's some there's some natural randomness in those yeah. scores and so you know the fact that you went up two points today and you went down one point tomorrow and then you went up two points the next day and down three points the next day none of that necessarily means anything they're, they're, uh, the scoring scales are different sometimes you get a little bit lucky on your guesses sometimes you get unlucky on your guesses 
Sometimes you narrow five questions down to a 50-50 and you guess that you get them all right. Sometimes you narrow five questions down to a 50-50 and you get them all wrong. And that doesn't have to mean anything. Mm-hmm. So when people are so tied to this, you know, whatever their very last result was, it's a little bit like checking your retirement portfolio every day. Yeah. You know, like none of that shit matters. This is all just noise. There's no signal there at all. It's totally just noise. And so instead of looking at every single practice test score, you know, maybe what you should be doing is thinking about what's the average of my last five practice test scores. I like yeah. to try to get people to look at moving averages instead of looking at every single uh, every single one result. Exactly. Um, cool. All right. Well, I think that this is pretty good. I do want to reiterate, Andrew, if you're thinking about using this close family friend as a, who's an attorney as a letter of recommendation, that is only appropriate if you actually worked for this attorney like this attorney knows you professionally and could have fired you. <laughs> if the yeah. if the attorney could have fired you, then it is appro- appropriate for them to write you a letter of recommendation. But if you grew up around this guy and he's close to your dad and whatever, um, that's actually a serious lack of judgment if you use that letter as a letter of recommendation. And I think that might be the kind of thing that could get you instantly denied from law school. I agree completely. And I would tag on here a little bit. He he seemed to ask, I think, about whether his familiarity with the law, because his dad and uncles were all attorneys, would help him in some way. Um, I think being familiar with the profession is a good thing, but I would in no way mentioned that your familiarity comes from the fact that your family members are attorneys i would just show that you're familiar with it if you want to if that becomes relevant to your personal statement but i don't think people really care why you're familiar i think they just care that you are familiar and you know what you're getting into yeah i think it's easy to come off naive when when you pretend like you know what it's all about sure. <laughs> it's really yeah. easy for the lawyers who are reading your personal statement to be rolling their eyes and like hey listen you're 23 years old you don't know jack shit you've never yeah. been to law school you don't know jack shit you've never yeah. practiced law you don't know anything i don't care that your dad and uncles are attorneys you don't know anything it's easy for them to i'm not saying that i'm saying they're saying that or it's easy for them to say that when they read these, because you know we read a lot of personal statements, right? Ben, I, mm-hmm. I read drafts of personal statements, and there there is a bit too much. Well, not a bit. There's a lot too much hubris in these personal statements, where the almost the worst thing you can you can say, or the worst impression you can give is if you think you've got it all figured out. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. speaking as someone. A little older than you. Yeah. <laughs> I am here to say that when I was in my 20s, I sometimes also thought I had it all figured out. <clears throat> and I definitely did not. Yeah. That's like the one thing I've learned as I've gotten older is that I don't know anything. So, yeah, I would just kind of shy away from that. Maybe talk a little bit more about your, you know, your accomplishments, your interests. I think that's all great. Keep it factual keep some of the editorialization out of there 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that if he actually is familiar and he knows exactly what he wants to do, I think you can talk about that in a way that shows that he is somewhat familiar with the industry and his profession, but you're not doing that. I mean, again, it would be, it would be if that's relevant to your personal statement, if, if you have a very specific reason for going to law school and you are familiar with that because that's what your dad does or something, and that's what you're pursuing, you can talk about that, but it's more of a side benefit that then they realize, oh, this person kind of has a, a vision for what they're going to do after they graduate from law school, and the vision is not totally out there. It's not just something based on TV. But uh, in general, <laughs> yeah, be cautious because you probably are not as familiar with whatever it is you're talking about than you think you are. And yeah. a lot of these people are, they've gone through law school, and probably all of them have, and they have for whatever reason, decided to go into law school admission. Yeah, I mean, pointing to specific experience that you've had or experiences that you've had and showing like this path that you've been on and how you've exposed yourself in, you know, increasing, increasingly to some particular area of law and this is connects to exactly why you want to go to law school, especially if you're keeping it all very factual, like really evidence-based. Um, that's totally fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if the tone is like, well, my dad's an attorney and I've got all these close family friends that are attorneys and I know what this game is all about, you know, that's very conclusory. It's nothing about you. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. you're not, you're not doing anything there. Like you're not the subject of your personal statement anymore. Now it's your family and friends and connections and shit. And I just don't think that's impressing anybody. That doesn't, I think that makes you look spoiled. It doesn't, it doesn't make you look like you're actually going to be somebody who's going to come to law school and work hard. Yeah. Anyway, all that said, knowing about the legal field is awesome. I mean, I wish more people knew about the legal field before they dove into law school. Probably very, you know, dramatically fewer people would go to law school if they knew what they were getting themselves into. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you know lawyers and you, have you know what lawyers actually do and you actually want to do that that's all a good thing that's that's a fantastic thing but i don't think for your application purposes i don't think that's very relevant yeah okay um all right thanks andrew for the email moving on to carmen carmen says hi so i know i'm late to the party As in, not only did I just start listening to your podcast, but I'm 27 years old and will hopefully be applying to law school in fall of 2016 at the ripe age of 28. Quick background, and I apologize if you've covered this, but I graduated from Chico State, that's in Northern California, if people don't know, with a BA in history and a 3.0 GPA. Went to USD, got a paralegal certificate, worked as a paralegal for two and a half years. Going to take the October LSAT and I've been studying for a little over one month using Blueprint Online. Um, I should not have listened to her. Yes, I think they're funny sometimes. Oh, recommended by an attorney friend of hers, Blueprint Online. I think I should not have listened to her. I think they're funny sometimes, but thus far I do not believe it's working for me. I'm not going to shell out another $700 or more for an LSAT prep course. Here are my questions. 
Do you have any suggestions for studying on your own while working full time? How likely are scholarships and grants with my 3.0 GPA and say a 155 LSAT? Then again, same questions. Do you think my stellar attorney recommendations working in the legal field and or having my paralegal certificate can benefit me or help turn away from my low GPA? I'd like to get some financial help and my top school pick is Lewis and Clark in Oregon. Admiring fan, Carmen. What are you doing, looking it up? Yeah, I was just gonna look up that one. Um, okay, yeah, so I think her first question, do you have any suggestions for studying on your own while working full time? We've covered this a lot, but full time, uh, individual sections, right, in the evening? Uh, I mean, or the morning before work. You know, mm-hmm. I, I like to try to get people to think about it as almost like a fitness routine where you're not going to do seven hours on a Saturday because you just don't have that much energy. And anyway, it's not as effective to do seven hours on a Saturday as it is to just do one hour every single day. Yeah. Carmen, you are not the only person who's studying for the LSAT while working full time. Um, The vast majority of my students work full time. Many of them work full time and go to school. So, you know, you're not alone. people can and do make big improvements while self-studying and while working a full-time schedule. I think the key is to make it an everyday discipline. And yeah, I mean, I think the magic one hour is sit down, do a 35 minute timed section. And then when time's up, review your mistakes. Yeah. Do that every single day. If you do that every single day, you'll be doing almost two tests per week. And between now and the October LSAT, you'll have done like at least 10 full tests. And that might not be enough for everybody, but it's hard to see how you're going to do 10 full tests and not improve. Mm-hmm. Um, Carmen says, I got a 147 the first time I took a practice exam with no studying. And then is asking, hey, how likely are scholarships and grants with my GPA and say a 155? Don't you so, think that that's selling him or herself a, a little bit short? Yeah. Wait, selling herself short? What do you mean? I got a 147 the first time I took a practice exam oh, with no studying. Saying, we're referring to the 155. And then is saying, yeah, with my 3.0 and hey, how about a 155? What are my chances? Yeah. No, I think... Uh, selling yourself short, right? Yeah, of course. Um I think it's a very reasonable goal. She'll probably almost certainly get that. And so maybe she's just trying to be safe or conservative, but there's no reason to think she couldn't get into the upper 150s. I mean, heck, she could get a lot higher. It really depends on why she's scoring where she's scoring. Yeah. Um, but people go up uh, anywhere from 10 to sometimes 20 points. Not It's not that uncommon. Obviously, 20 is less common, but it does happen. So. Yeah, I mean, the typical student... I'm surprised if the typical, if, if average student, I expect them to improve their score by 10 points, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if they don't improve their score by 10 points, it's frequently because they just haven't put in the work. Yeah. Um, there are 75 practice tests now. I'm not telling Carmen to do all 75, but man, do a section a day, do two tests per week do 10 tests 
over the next five or six weeks, I'll, I'll be shocked if you're not already at your 155. Yeah. And the difference between a 155 and a 160 <laughs> is huge. So if you're going to just be satisfied with the 155, I mean, I think that would be a pretty bad strategic error. Um, the difference between a 155 and a 160 is going to be the difference between a full ride and not a full ride. Yeah. Uh, looking at this, uh, Lewis and Clark's numbers, actually, the 25th percentile is 155 for the LSAT. And, 25th percentile, 155. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And the 75th percentile is 161. So if she, she'd, <laughs> wow. be, she'd be going from the bottom of, not the bottom, but, you know, near the bottom of the, the pool to the, basically near the top of the pool. Uh, oddly enough, though, so the GPA percentiles uh, is 3.05 is the 25th and 3.6 basically is the 75th. So she's below that 25th percentile with her 3.0. Uh, but when I plug those numbers into LSAC.org's calculator, they still gave her with a 155 and a 3.0, they gave her a 50 to 75% chance of getting in. So I'm greater than half, which... I guess kind of surprised me because that's the 25th percentile for both of those uh, for that school. Well, remember that, that sure, but the, because those are those are matriculated students, right? The ranges are the matriculated students, and to get a 25th percentile of 3.0 and 155 for students who actually enroll, they're going to have to admit a much wider range. Right, I yeah, think. I guess so. Yeah. I think that the when the numbers, um, the numbers are going to, what is it? Go up or go down? Well, um, yeah, they're they're going to have to admit a wider range than are going to end up actually going to school there. I think they would probably go that range would go up, right? As the scores go up, because you have more people probably going to other places. The higher scores are going to get in, but go other places. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, I'm confusing myself. But the point is, um, 3.0155 gets her a pretty good 50-50 chance of getting in. 50 to 75 is the yeah. range. And then what happens, just for shits and giggles, what happens when you change that to a 158? I don't think I've ever heard that phrase before. Shits and giggles? Yeah. Because <laughs> I need to broaden my horizons. All right, so um, Lewis and Clark... Whoa! That, so wait, what did you just say? One fifty-eight. Yeah. Yeah, that pops it up to seventy-fifth to ninetieth percent chance. Yeah, just a few points there. I mean, that's that's two weeks worth of diligent LSAT studying, and you dramatically increase your chances. Yeah. So you know, do it, make it happen. Um, I I like to recommend people to again make it a daily practice. I think for people working full time, it depends if you're a morning person or if you're an evening person, but boy, a lot of people just are really run down after work. And if you're studying after work and you don't have the energy, then you're kind of training yourself to do poorly on the test. Mm -hmm. We need to practice being successful, right? We need to practice what it feels like to be doing the test right and have it be easy for us. And so a lot of times I, I do try to encourage people to make it a morning routine or possibly she can sneak away from work and do it at a lunchtime routine. 
Um, or after work is fine too. If you've got the energy, maybe you have a cup of coffee in the afternoon and crank it out. Um, you know, I would just say block that hour off for yourself. And it, it does really need to be like a just inviable hour. Um, your phone needs to be in airplane mode. You need to be in a closed off room somewhere or in a library or a Starbucks or somebody where nobody's going to bother you. You can't do this with if you've got roommates, if you've got kids, if you've got other family members, they really need to be they need to be put on notice to leave you alone for that hour. Mm -hmm. And then and again, you need to turn your phone off. You need to turn the TV off. You need to turn everything off. You need to just like, I'm going to do the LSAT now for one hour. And it's not the end of the world. It's just an hour. It's an investment in your future. Just do it every single day. And I, I'll i be shocked if you don't improve. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's my primary, you know, that's my number one tip for not just people who are self-studying, but even people who are taking like my class or working with me one-on-one uh, -on -one private tutoring. I'm telling people, everybody pretty much the same thing is like, give me one good hour every day. Mm-hmm. If you want to do a full test once in a while on a Saturday, that's great. Or if you've got the energy to do two hours worth of studying today instead of one, that's great. Yeah. But, you know, <clears throat> the important thing, I think, is just that habitual, everyday kind of a routine. Yeah, I would have to second that with a, a slight analogy here. I've, I was, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, so if I did, tell me to shut up. But um, I went on vacation uh, to the beach had a beach house and was talking to my friend who works out all the time and he's pretty uh fit and i said well look what do you do you know how do you work out and he said well every day i do this little routine and then four times a week i actually go to the gym so every day i'm doing this on this little routine on top of going to the gym four times so when i heard going to the gym four times i was like wow that that would be a lot more than what i do already but then on top of that, every day, including the days that he goes to the gym, he's doing this other stuff. So I said, shoot, why not? I'll just try it. And since I've started doing it, since this little routine is only 15 minutes, the fact I have to do something every day, it's like it, it just gets me into the routine. I'm not going to say, oh, well, today I don't have to do anything because I did something yesterday, which would then turn into two days off because I'm just lazy like that. And I always have excuses for work or whatever. So um, I know it's totally unrelated, but for at least for me, having to do something every day has made it actually easier to do big things too. So I think your suggestion to do an hour every day um, gets people into the habit. At least it has in this workout context has gotten me into the habit. And then because I'm already into it, it's very normal to then go do more. Yeah, And so I think on occasion when you're feeling like you have the energy or the time or you get off work a little bit early that day for whatever reason, put in two, three hours if you can. It's always, it's like a glass half full sort of thing because you've done your hour and if you do two or three, then you're feeling like you've done extra. But if you're shooting for two and three and then you don't hit it, then you're feeling like you failed. Yeah, right, totally. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's like the gym door. Uh, I know we've mentioned this before. Um, there's a theory about uh, workouts where 
tell you what you just get to the gym <laughs> yeah you 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 don't actually if you don't want to you don't have to work out what you do have to do is you have to get yourself to the front door of the gym dressed in your gym clothes you have to touch the front door of the gym yeah and if yeah. you get there and you decide you know what i don't have the energy for this today i'm going home okay but tomorrow you need to come back and do this exact same thing and the odds are you're gonna start actually going in and getting on the elliptical machine for a little while right and if you can do that every single day then maybe you're gonna now oh i'll pick up some weights and do a little bit of this yeah so the the lsat thing of just a little bit every single day it's nice actually that it's broken down into these 35 minute sections because it kind of makes it like this perfect bite-sized uh thing mm -hmm. where you just do a 35 minute section and then you correct it and then you review your mistakes and then you you know dust yourself off and say okay well that was good that was that was a productive hour that i just spent yeah and if you've got the energy to spend another hour then yeah by all means but um you know, it's your the hour that you spend today is really important, and the hour that you spend tomorrow is equally important. Yeah. And so, one thing that I think people do wrong is they burn themselves out. You know, they're going to do a full practice test today, and then they they run out of gas, and then they don't do anything tomorrow, which turns into not doing anything the day after that, which turns into not doing anything the day after that. Yeah. And now I think they would have been much better off just doing the one section a day. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, the last, you know, again, here Carmen is asking, do you think my stellar attorney recommendations and legal experience and paralegal certificate can benefit me, et cetera? Um, yes. Just like we said earlier in the show, yes, that can help you, but only at the margins. It is not going to make up for your low GPA. It's certainly not going to make up for a less than um, stellar LSAT score. It's wishful thinking, you know. <laughs> I want. I wish I could give people better news mm -hmm. because I get it all the time, right? It's like people rationalizing, like, "Well, but I have all this awesome experience. Like that, surely that's got to count for something." And really, I think the truth is, it counts for very little compared to the LSAT and GPA and you need to just sort of get over that and yeah. get the very best LSAT score and GPA that you can. Yeah. You need to remember that you're going to be compared with people who have the same LSAT score and GPA as you. Or at least right? a close range. A, a close, a close range. And yeah. So you have to get yourself into that close range because you know, if there's another candidate who's got a 3.5 and a 160, Carmen is just not going to be compared with that candidate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a three, a 3.5 and a 160 is going to be a no brainer. You're getting into Lewis and Clark. Yes. A 3.0 and a 155 is going to be compared against all the other 3.0s and 155s. Yeah. So if you really want to make a difference, if you really want to get yourself into that school that you want to get yourself into, go get yourself five more LSAT points so that you become a no brainer. It's yeah. the easiest, it's just the easiest way, you know, it's the, by far the easiest way to get in. Yeah. And I guess we know that because we've seen so many students improve their LSAT score by so much. Carmen with your 147 cold, right? That's what it says. 147, yeah. first time I took a practice exam, no studying. I, I, I would be kind of disappointed if you don't end up with a 160. 
Mm-hmm. I, that's a from 147 to 160 is a totally achievable improvement. Yeah. And if you do that, then you're in at Lewis and Clark. In fact, you're probably getting scholarship money at Lewis and Clark. Yeah. That's how okay. to get the scholarship. Yeah, then that is how to get the scholarship. Yes. They they are buying LSAT scores. That's yeah. what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, if if you don't get the scholarship, then you're paying for someone else's LSAT score. Because mm-hmm. because the reason why tuitions are so high is that you're paying not only your tuition, but you're paying someone else's tuition, someone else who's there on a full ride because they got a better LSAT score than you. Yeah. So that's the sad truth. If that makes you angry, um, I didn't make those rules. I'm, I'm just telling you what the rules are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think we're ready to move on to this last yeah, yeah. question. All yeah, right. This is interesting. Um, Danny says, hey, I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast. I was interested to hear your argument against reading the question stem first on the logical reasoning. As logical reasoning is my strongest section, I miss zero or one pretty much every time. And yet I am guilty of committing the cardinal sin, according to Nathan Fox, of reading the question stem first. After thinking about it a bit more and hearing what you had to say, I think that your aversion to the strategy may be at least partly due to a misunderstanding. When I read the question stem first, says Danny, I am not trying to figure out whether a given question is, say, a flaw rather than a sufficient assumption. If that were the strategy, I agree that it would be idiotic. There are certainly a bunch of different question types that all should involve the same basic strategy. Understand the argument in the passage, figure out what's wrong with it. However, here's the objection. There is also a non-negligible number of questions for which the basic strategy above would be a waste of time and effort. I disagree. Specifically, I have in mind must be true main conclusion and explain. I disagree Um, when we'll get into it. In addition, I think that you would agree that for most people it is best to skip or leave for the end matching pattern and matching flaw questions, at least when they turn up in, say, the second half of the section. I also disagree with that. So when I read the question stem first, I'm not trying to distinguish between different question types that require the same basic strategy. Rather, I'm trying to quickly figure out whether it would be a waste of time and effort to use the basic strategy on a particular question And if I were having a hard time answering all the questions in a section correctly within 35 minutes, I would also be trying to identify the skippable questions. Does this help explain why reading the question stem first isn't necessarily an idiotic strategy? Danny. So um, I want to say definitely thanks for that, Danny. Uh, I do feel strongly that reading the question stem first on the logical reasoning is a very bad strategy. I've helped a million students improve their logical reasoning score simply by convincing them not to read the question stem first. So the proof is a little bit in the pudding there. But um, you make good points, and I would love to address these points. Um, The first thing that I want to say is just you're missing zero or one pretty much every time, then great. I mean, you're doing awesome, and I would never advise you to change that. (laughs) I mean, if absolutely keep doing what you've you are doing there is no reason for you to change anything about the way you're doing logical reasoning if you're missing if you're really missing zero or one pretty much every time then by all means continue reading the question stem first um but 
there are two you you have two points in the in your email that I, I disagree with both of them. So the first is you say when a question turns out to be a main conclusion or a must be true or an explanation question, that it would be a waste of time and effort to understand the argument and figure out what's wrong with it. Um, that is not true because my method of reading the arguments or my method of reading the stimulus for these logical reasoning questions, when I get done reading it, if there was no conclusion there, then I noticed that there was no conclusion there. And so I'm not wasting any time or effort arguing because I can tell that there wasn't any logic. If it's just fact, 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 then I immediately just go into the question stem and what's in my head is, oh, well, you're probably, this is probably a must be true. So, and, and a lot of times it does turn out to be a must be true. If it was a main conclusion question or an explanation question, I also don't think it's a waste of time there to argue. My method of reading the stimulus carefully and my method of arguing is what allows me to understand what the conclusion is every single time. It, because I'm critical, because I'm reading critically, I never ever fail to identify the main conclusion of an argument. So there would be no value to me, in fact it would be a waste of time to me, to have read the question stem first and see, oh this is a main conclusion question, oh now I'm going to read the argument and just find the main conclusion. Because if I would have just read the argument, I would have already known the main conclusion before I ever read the question stem. So I do not think that this basic strategy is ever a waste of time and effort. Um, so anyway, there's my thoughts on that. I don't know. Ben, you want to chime in on that? Um, sure. I, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, because of our discussions on the show and because people ask about it all the time. And so I have been, especially when the new tests come out, for example, test uh, 50, or sorry, 75 just came out. That was the June test. Yep. Uh, when I took it, I tried to pay really close attention to what I was actually doing and tried to also read the question stem first to figure out if it helped or not, what it was like to do that. Right. Okay. I mean, I've done that before, but it's a little different to do it on questions you've absolutely never seen before. Um, and what I observed, at least for me, is that I do not like reading the question stem first. Uh, that might be largely due to habit, so something that I'm used to. But the reason I didn't like doing it then, and I've observed elsewhere, is that my number one goal before anything else is to gain an intuitive grasp of what the person is actually saying. A lot of times the sentences on the LSAT are wordy, they're, they use abstractions, they are poorly written on purpose, and if I can just slow down and de, you know, deconstruct it and understand, oh, okay, what you're really trying to say is X, and I understand that. Uh, you have to be careful when you rephrase things. You don't want to rephrase them incorrectly, but when you translate them into plain English, and that plain English is an accurate translation of what they said, 
in my mind, all of a sudden, I think that my intuitive mind is able to take that information and then quickly analyze it. So what I found is that if I read the question stem first, I start to have thoughts in my mind that distract me from my ultimate goal, which I feel like is to just understand the passage. And if I try to really understand the passage, and that means each sentence in it, when I read a sentence and then I finally understand it, if the sentence is saying something stupid or surprising, I will instantly react to that, as opposed to just reading it and going, "Uh uh-huh, 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 like, yeah, I got what it said, but I didn't really think about what it meant, and so then I don't have any reaction to it. I mean, the LSAT says stupid things all the time, and it's surprising to me when people don't really have any sort of reaction to that in class. They just, yeah. it, it suggests to me that they haven't really taken in what it literally means. And so... Yeah, I like that a lot. So I, I don't like reading the question stem first because I don't want anything to get in the way of that. If someone is making noise next to me or I'm thinking about time or whatever, that's preventing me from fully engaging and focusing on those sentences. So... What will happen is I'll read them, and if I do fully understand them, then oftentimes, especially because I've practiced this so much, practiced finding the conclusion, finding the premises, figuring out why the premises don't support the conclusion, my mind is doing that for me on 70% of these questions. So the analysis is happening as I'm reading it. That's not going to be true for people who are just starting out because they just read things and they're not practicing, analyzing them, or even when they start to practice, it takes a long time because they don't necessarily see the logical flaw. But after you force yourself to see that proactively, you start seeing them really quickly. That said, if I read a passage and I don't see a problem with it, uh, I think I do do what Danny is kind of referring to here, and that is I'll read it and say, okay, I get it, and nothing is jumping out at me, and then I'll look down at the question, and if it says flaw, strengthen, weaken, whatever, then I will force myself to go back up and say, okay, there is a problem. Let me parse this out. But it's easy to do so because I'm doing that within the context of a, a, a good understanding of the passage rather than trying to break it all down. I think sometimes people get lost in the details because they don't have a good intuitive understanding of the overall argument. And then at that point, I would force myself to figure out what the problem is and then go into the answer choices. Um, if I hadn't found it already. So I'm sympathetic with his desire to use the question itself to help him figure out what he should be doing. I guess I just feel like I don't want anything to get in the way of my understanding of the passage. And then as soon as I start trying to understand it, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, being critical and so forth, happens automatically. But if it doesn't, then I might, yes, and I do use the question to guide me in terms of how much more work should I be doing. If I look down, it's like main conclusion. I've already found the main conclusion, but maybe I haven't found a problem with it because no problem jumped out at me. But now I say, well, I'm not going to force myself to keep looking for that problem or to keep being critical because it's just asking for the main conclusion and I know where that is. Yeah, I think reacting is a really important thing. Um, I'll tell you one thing that I hear a lot. I, I, I read, I'm sure you do too, read logical reasoning questions out loud in class, right? You're going to mm-hmm. work your way through logical reasoning questions in class. Yes. Frequently, somebody will say, hey, Nathan, section two, number 14, I just don't understand it. Can you please do this question in class? And I say, absolutely, no problem. 
then I read the argument and the student goes, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And then they go, then they go, it's just, I just, once I just hear you read the argument, then it makes so much more sense. And it's like, well, yeah, because I'm reading it with like inflection in my voice Mm -hmm. because I'm actually paying attention to the meaning of the words. I'm not just sort of monotone going over each word. I'm actually engaging with the speaker. Mm -hmm. I'm reading that first sentence with some tone in my voice, trying to like make it a conversation and I'm stopping and I'm reacting to it. I'm thinking about it. And when I read the next sentence, I'm reading it also in the same, you know, I'm, I'm constructing, I'm making sense of it as I read. Yeah. And I think that's what people maybe are missing. And I do think that reading the question stem first can put you into that mode really easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's definitely something there. I, the, you know, I say a lot in class, if you're not getting pissed off, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. That like the reason why I'm so good at the logical reasoning is that I just read the argument and I go, well, this is bullshit. Or I read the argument and I go like, for example, an explanation question in an explanation question, they are purportedly going to present you with a somewhat surprising set of facts and then ask you to explain that surprising set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Well, when I get finished reading one of those stimuluses, stimuli from an, from an explanation question, I, I naturally almost automatically will be coming up with the, I'll, I'll finish reading the, the stimulus and then I'll say, Oh, well, they're, to, I, I'm, 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 I'm immediately coming with explanations before I've even read that question stem mm-hmm. because it's like, I'm curious, I'm engaged, I'm puzzled. I'm, I have allowed my natural human curiosity to become, to become excited by this puzzling set of facts. And I don't need them to tell me your job is to explain this puzzling set of facts because when I read this puzzling set of facts, my mind immediately starts trying to come up with solutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm just, all I have to do is just engage with the argument that they're giving me. Yeah. And then maybe I'm just well-trained. I mean, obviously I've been doing this for a long time and I've done a million LSAT questions. So that certainly doesn't hurt me, but I think students are capable of doing this exact same thing in a lot of cases, just kind of naturally, you know, you, you're, if you're going to law school, the odds are you like to read and you're pretty good at reading Mm -hmm. and you're probably pretty passionate, engaged type of a person who, you know, likes to be challenged and likes to think about things and isn't afraid of kind of dense text or whatever and i would encourage you to just engage with that stimulus on a much more commonsensical kind of a level i mean think about if this wasn't the lsat Mm -hmm. if this was just you turn on the tv and nancy grace is there you know squawking with her usual bullshit 
how would you engage with Nancy Grace? Yeah. If if this were Nancy Grace's argument, how would you engage with it? Because I'm sure you would read it with, you know, uh, some tone in your voice and you would be like, all right, let me see what she's fucking saying today. You know, I, I guarantee this is going to be bullshit. Let's see. And then as you read it, you would not only grasp what's there, but I think you would naturally be coming up with some objections about what's not there. And it doesn't take time to do that because it happens like automatically. Mm-hmm. And then that makes you perfectly equipped to answer 75% of all of the LSAT questions that are related to strengthening, weakening, identifying flaws, identifying assumptions, etc. But then if it just said, based on the above, which one of the following must be true, or what was the main conclusion, or how do you explain this puzzling set of circumstances, I think you're already going to be able to answer those ones as well. Yeah. And I so I definitely disagree with the premise here that it's a waste of time to do it my way. In oh. fact, I think it's... Yeah. Huh? I, I think it's a waste of time to do it the other way. Yeah, so one thing he says here is he says it's a, a cardinal sin, and I think you would agree with that. Um, but for I him, I'm not telling him not to do it because it's working for him. So, you know, I'm also like, I'm an agnostic, you yeah. know? I, I mean, I'm an atheist, and if you show me the evidence and I'll buy it. And so I'm taking him at his word that he's missing one or zero or one on the logical reasoning. And so even if I think it's a cardinal sin for most people, it doesn't seem to be a cardinal sin for Danny. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I don't think that it's a cardinal sin. Now, to be clear, as I said before, I don't like doing it. I don't like reading the question stem before I read the passage. But I would say, uh, I don't, I think what's a cardinal sin, and I think this, this is, there's a much stronger case for this. I'm not saying that the case you've made isn't that strong, but and especially since I agree with it, and that's what I yeah. do. But I think the the if we're going to talk about cardinal sins, I would say the cardinal sin, which a lot more people are committing and probably not even realizing it, and that is whether you read the question stem first or the passage and then the question stem, you have to stop right before you go into the answer choices. That's yeah. what I would say is the cardinal sin, is that whatever the order is there, people are just reading the passage, they're reading the question stem, or vice versa, and then they're just going right into the answer choices. And it's, yeah. it's all the work is happening before you even get to that letter A in that first answer choice. And I would say there is where people are violating the yeah. LSAT process the most severely. Yeah, and and not only start, uh, not only do you need to stop before you go into the answer choices, but I think frequently you need to stop halfway through the argument. Yes. Right. Yes. If you read you the first, what it's yeah, saying. you read the first sentence of the argument and it doesn't quite make sense, or you read the first couple sentences of the argument, or you know maybe it's a long sentence with a couple of clauses in it. If you don't take the time to parse that out and figure out what they're saying, like which of this, which part of this is their conclusion and which part of this is their evidence and where are they going with this shit? You know, the second sentence isn't going to explain the first sentence for you. Nope. So pausing halfway through that argument can be a really powerful technique. Yeah. In fact, a lot of times that pause and put the pieces together turns out to be the answer to the question. Yeah. I mean, 
there are plenty of must be true questions, for example, where the first sentence has two clauses in it. And if you combine those two clauses together, you get the answer to the question. Mm-hmm. And the argument then goes on and on and on and on and on with other stuff. Yeah. But if you would have just paused and put the pieces of the puzzle in that first sentence together, mm-hmm. you would have seen, oh, well, I can make an inference here. If this is true and if this is true, then this other thing must be true. Okay, good. Now I'll continue reading the rest of the stimulus. Yeah. But then you get down to the answer choices and it's a must be true. And you're like, oh, shit. Well, based on the first sentence, this must be true. So that's the answer. So now I can move on. But what most people do is, I think, or most novices do, is they go into that like monotone style of reading where they're reading the words, but they're not reading the sentences, right? Yep. They're reading the words, but they're not reading the argument. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that, I think we both agree, is the cardinal sin on the logical reasoning. Yes. It would be analogous to reading the rules in the game section and then saying, Okay, let's take a look at question one. What the heck can we do here? Or if you're even diagramming games, when you go into the if questions, you read the if rule, you say, oh, if T is third, and then you say, okay, I know T is third, let's take a look at answer choice A. Could this be true? Um, That, it'd be exactly like doing that. Totally. I hope we realize is ridiculous. You have to set up a diagram. (laughs) Not putting the pieces of the puzzle together. It's, it's amazing. I was doing, um, last night in class, we did the logic games from 2000, June, 2011 logic games. Okay. And there's a game where it's like, it's a sequencing game. One of the rules says W can't go last. And one of the rules says, before w yep and those two rules are back to back they are presented back to back (laughs) and it's like and one of the answers to one of the questions is t can't go fifth Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but it's like it's like this is baby steps and again there's six players for six spots w can't go last and t has to go before w they mention W in the first rule. They mention W in the very next rule. Your job is to be smart and to notice that there was a connection between those two rules. Yeah. And when you see that, oh shit, W can't go last, but T has to go before W. Huh. <laughs> if W, if T went fifth, then W would have to go last, but W can't go last. So, oh my God, T can't go fifth. Yeah. And it, it's like, no shit. And then, yes, that is just the answer to one of the questions. Yeah. And you should, if you're doing it at all properly, you should have seen that T can't go fifth before you ever looked at the answer choices. Yeah. Because they're just begging for you to make that connection. I mean, they really do. In a lot of cases, especially on the easier games, they're laying out the breadcrumbs for you mm-hmm. and just hoping that you will follow the breadcrumbs. Yeah. I can't tell you how many games there are where the first rule and the second rule mention the same player. <laughs> yeah. And and all you have to do is put those put those puzzle pieces together and it's like it's almost couldn't be easier. Mm-hmm. But you have to for, you do have to force yourself to do it. And I think what most people do is they just would read, you know, oh W can't go last, T before W, some other rule, some other rule. Okay, I'm gonna look at question number one. Yeah. And they just don't even take the time to you know, they, they gave it to you. They're trying to give it to you. 
and you're just like not letting them give you free points. Yeah. So, um, we that we we had started off talking about logical reasoning, but the same thing applies to the logical reasoning. Yeah. Take your time. Read the arguments slower. Read them more carefully. Pause during the argument. Pause after the argument. Once you read the question stem, pause again before you go into the answer choices and try to make a prediction. Then once you go into the answer choices, it'll be like the correct answer is just glowing on the page. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, do you think we beat this one to death? I think so, yeah. Okay, good, I'm glad. Congratulations, Danny, I'm glad you're doing so well. Yeah, I mean, Danny is kicking ass clearly and I, I wouldn't tell Danny to change a thing. I would tell any refugees, and I get a lot of them, refugees from Kaplan, refugees from Princeton Review, refugees from Blueprint, who have this idea that they need to read the question stem first, it is frequently a big distraction. And I think that it is, I do think that if you're just starting out, I feel really strongly that you should not read the question stem first. And if you have been studying this method, you've been doing this method and you're not happy with your LSAT score, mm -hmm. then I would really encourage you to not do that anymore. Yeah. And, and, and just give it a shot, not just one test now, give it you know four or five tests worth of practice. Practice not reading the question stem first and see if it helps. Because I've seen that one thing make dramatic changes. Like I had a student Recently, I had a tutoring student. She was doing great, too. I mean, she was scoring like 170, low 170s, but she was missing, you know, three or four, five sometimes on the logical reasoning. Mm -hmm. And when she stopped reading the question stem first, she found that she was engaging much more deeply with the actual arguments. Mm -hmm. And she just immediately went to like, missing zero or one on the logical reasoning. Yeah. So, and I've, I've just, I've seen that happen too many times to count. So um, if it's working, <laughs> by all means continue. But if it's not working, then I would say, yeah, really do not do that. Can I say one more thing about this? Um, there was this other premise that I think is worth talking about. Um, Danny thought that I would agree that for most people, it's best to skip or leave for the end the matching pattern and matching flaw questions? Yes. I totally disagree with that. I, I, I do not recommend that people skip the matching pattern or matching flaw questions. I don't know. That's that's that. I mean, I... Wait, I, I under I, I'm actually... I'm a little surprised by that because I thought that... Uh, I thought you have suggested that in the past. If someone has recognized that they have a particularly hard time with these questions... Mm -hmm. then I might sometimes permit them to skip, but I would never permit them to skip any of those questions in the first 10. And I don't think I would permit them to skip those questions in the first 15. I think maybe the only time I would permit them to skip those questions is if the five minute warning had already been called and you're looking at a choice between doing a long ass question 22 that takes up a whole column because it's a matching pattern question, do that or do a very short question number 23. You know, in, in that situation, if you think you've only got time for one more question, then I think I might skip. But 
I don't think the matching pattern questions and the matching flaw questions are necessarily any harder than the other questions on the logical reasoning. Yeah, so I do agree with you on the fact that if someone has found that they are hard to do those, then they should, then maybe they should skip them. If they don't, haven't found that yet, then give them a shot. Uh, I do think, though, like you're saying, and I, I, he was saying in the latter half of the section, I, I guess we would just refine that to say, well, at least my personal opinion is if you're on those last two pages and you're looking at, you can see them all in front of you. And yeah. you see, like you said, you see a really long parallel reasoning question. And five and, minutes has already been called? Uh, Yeah, if it has, or maybe even if it hasn't, because you, you have them all accessible right in front of you. Okay. So uh, if you know you're not good at those, and that, that's a that's a really important point, I think. If you know you're not good at those and you're looking at them, it's very easy to go 21, 22, skip 23, do 24, 25, and then if now you have time, come I, back. I can spend all the time. I don't have to stress about how much time I get sucked into this because everything else has been answered on these pages. Yeah. And so if I you know, have to just rush at the end, I can bubble something in, and I know I haven't given up other questions. I, I don't see a problem with that. Uh, but people do have to be careful because if you if you're not sure whether you're not that good at those, you can go to a really short question. But a lot of times, those really short questions at the end are formal logic, and people totally. are getting twisted around it, and they don't realize that yeah, great, it's short, but it's also extremely hard. Or so, a necessary assumption question where the correct answer is related to some weird weakener, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like you can you can get lost in that one just as easily as you can get lost in a matching pattern question. Sure. I don't think the matching pattern and matching flaw questions are hard. I mean, especially matching flaw. I, I feel like they're hard for people at first because they don't know what they're looking for. But as soon as we talk about them in class and they say, oh, okay, I know the rules of the game, sometimes they can get easier. And some people like them from the get-go better than the others. I think there's just a misunderstanding of what the goal is. They're, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, they, are, they are certainly learnable. I think they're really pretty formulaic. There are plenty of examples of matching pattern questions or like specifically matching flaw questions where, you know, the flaw is confusing a sufficient condition for a necessary condition. Mm -hmm. Okay, I know what that flaw looks like. And then you read A and A confuses a sufficient condition for a necessary condition. Yeah. And then it's like, well, yes, this question takes up an entire column on the page. But I think I've already identified the answer and I've only read like one quarter of the column. Mm -hmm. And now all I have to do is skim B and C and D and E. And it's going to be really easy to dismiss those answers as soon as they do anything other than confusing a sufficient condition for a necessary condition. Yeah. And then the answer turns out to be A and you're moving on and it just wasn't that hard of a question. Mm -hmm. I, I find them to be um, predictable, I guess specifically matching flaw because there's a flaw in the argument. They tell you there's a flaw in the argument. All you have to do is just identify that flaw and then go find it. Mm -hmm. Matching pattern questions can be a little bit harder. Although even sometimes on a matching pattern question, there will be a flaw. They don't tell you there's a flaw, but there's a flaw and you recognize it. Then all you have to do is go find that same flaw. Mm -hmm. I find that I don't spend very much time on the answer choices on matching pattern questions or matching flaw questions. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's the, um, if people recognize a few rules, I think they can, they can go a lot faster with confidence. 
Like if they recognize that the conclusion is an if-then statement and I notice that the conclusion in answer choice A is not an if-then statement and other reasons have already made me suspicious of the answer, I'll eliminate it pretty quickly without much hesitation. Whereas I think other people are holding on to that because they don't realize the logical significance of an if-then statement in a conclusion. Yeah, or, or the conclusion is a cause and effect statement. Sure. Then the correct answer must include cause and effect. There's just no other way around it. Yep. And so it becomes, I think, it becomes a really a fairly formulaic question. You know, if the correct answer turns out to be E, mm -hmm. then it might take you a while to get there. Yeah. But I still think that you could probably dismiss A and B and C and D in most cases pretty easily as long as you identified closely enough with the given argument. Yeah. Right? That, oh, yeah. shit, there was cause and effect here. Yeah. Well, then there better be cause and effect in the correct answer. And you can just sort of like cut through those answers again and get, get to the right answer fairly quickly. Yeah. I don't encourage people to skip questions. Generally speaking, if you skip questions, the next question is probably on average harder than the question that you were, that you skipped. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you, especially if you find that you're skipping five questions, mm -hmm. well, now you're going to be working on 15 through 20 instead of working on 10 through 15. Yeah. And I pretty much guarantee that 15 through 20 is harder than 10 through 15. Mm -hmm. So you can't skip five questions. Yeah. And I, I don't even think you can skip three questions. The, the Really the only time that I would skip, again, after the five minute warning or if you're on those last two pages, you know, you want to do the questions out of order. Okay, fine. But the only time that I would ever skip early in the section is if I read the argument and I just have no idea what it's talking about. You know, maybe it's a formal logic one and I don't want to take the time to make the diagram that's going to be required in order to understand the argument. Mm -hmm. <sighs> maybe, maybe in that case, if you just know you're not going to get it, then maybe you can skip that one. Yeah. But if you find yourself doing that more than once per section, then I think you're doing it wrong and you, you need to be a little more sticky and you need to just force yourself to understand this stuff. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're not understanding the ones in the first 10, you're not going to understand the ones in the next 10 either. It's, yeah. They're not going to get easier. Cool. Anyways, Danny, thanks again for your email. I'm happy to debate anytime. So please, uh, anything that I ever say on the show, if you think it's bullshit, just send me an email and tell me why. And we'll be happy to discuss it. Ben has changed my mind many times on things. Um, I do have strong opinions but they're fairly loosely held. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely willing to change my mind when a better argument comes around. So um, <laughs> let's, let's continue the discussion and we'll all just sort of get a little bit better yeah. at the test. Well, likewise, uh, you've, you've definitely changed my opinion on a lot of things. So I feel good that we talk about these issues and kind of di di you know, dive into them. Yeah, yeah. Do you have time to do one uh, logical reasoning question from June 2007, or should we wrap it up? Uh, I do, although I actually want to talk about something that I've been working on, if, if you have a second. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's, let's do that. So this is kind of uh, an unexpected sort of thing, but when I was on vacation, I got talking to my brother-in-law, who is a, um, a very good programmer, and I said, well, what's the, you know, how hard would it be to create a 
a score tracker that does things that I think some of the score trackers out there do not do. Well, no, I know they don't do it. Um, in particular, track people's accuracy rates, not just their scores and so forth. And so it's a work in progress, but um, I'm already using it with the current class. And it's, I, it's use, it, people seem to like it, but at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of potential. Okay. So, um, I, in fact, I, I thought maybe you could take a look at it. I could walk you through it just really quickly, and you can tell me what you think and also maybe make people aware of it and give them a, sh a chance to try it out. So, yeah, that's awesome. So if you go to strategyprep.com okay. forward slash tracker, um, I'll probably come up with a better uh, place to put this sometime, but forward slash tracker, T-R-A-C-K-E-R. And you can also go to lsat.coach, no.com. It's just lsat.coach, but some mobile devices don't recognize the weird domain name. But, so I need to create an account? Yes. Yeah, so just go ahead and create an account. It's it's free. And once you create that account, you can log in. Okay. And when you log in, again, this is this is a work in progress. So you'll see a, a link that says score tracker and a link that says homework. Homework would be totally irrelevant to you because you're obviously not in the class and this would be true for anyone else who's trying this out. But if you click on score tracker, let me know yeah. when you when you get in. Yep, add a test. Yep, okay. Yep. So, and this too, again, is a work in progress. Right now I have uh, a bunch of tests in there. I'm gonna add a whole bunch more this week. It's just a matter of compiling the data. But let's say you add a test, uh, feel free to add whatever one you see there that you want to yeah, add. Yeah, okay, I'm clicking. So now it's like a bubble sheet and I just click my answers. Yeah, so this is this And is then what, view results, cool. Yeah, so go ahead and click uh, fill in your answers. Because what it'll do is it'll fill in all the correct answers. And then what we can do is, what test are you doing, by the way? Oh, I did uh, test 74. Okay, cool. So, you so now should I change a few of these? Yeah, so go ahead and change a few. And then this is the this is the thing I wanted to do. And I think it's something that you might find interesting as well. Um, does T mean, uh, what does T mean? Yeah, so that's what I want to talk about. So, so go ahead and mark you know a bunch of them wrong. And then let's say at the end of section, yeah, so let's say section two, that's the game section, right? Let's say you guessed D for the last, or C for the last five questions. Or oh, so I put, an, I put the answer that I bubbled, and then I also put T, because I didn't have time. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so you marked those with T, so you didn't have time to answer them. So what's going to happen is when you view your results, you're going to see a score based on the answers that you bubbled in, in this case, answer choice C. But then you're also going to see a score that completely <laughs> removes those because you didn't really attempt them. So we don't we don't want to include those in your accuracy, right? Like your accuracy is not... Yeah, accuracy is of the ones you attempted. Yes. Whereas raw score is just how many bubbles you were bubbled in correctly on the section, whether or not you had time. Yes. Cool. This is awesome, dude. I really like this. Yeah. So, um, and then after people take, again, I'm still working on it, but right now if people take two or more tests, it will average their results for all the sections and okay. for different question types and stuff like that. So. Okay. Can I make a feature request? Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> um, this is probably pie in the sky feature but um, it'd be awesome if there was a way to integrate this with a um, Scantron 
reader, like bubble sheet reader. Yes, yes. Um, and that I'm is sure you've already thought about that. But. Yeah, so right now you have to either fill it in and then change the ones that you got wrong or just start tapping them in. You can do it on your phone too. But uh, yeah, no, the OCR, um, being able to just scan it and then fill in the answers, that's definitely something in the works. Not right now. This is just to get it up and running quickly. But yeah, for sure. So then I click priority and it shows me which ones I skipped, encourages me to go ahead and do those ones. Mm -hmm. It shows me the ones that I missed, encourages me to redo those ones without telling me the right answer. Yep. Oh, I can try them again, I see. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Oh, it breaks down the games by type. Tells me which question types I'm missing on the games and the reading and the reading comprehension mm -hmm. or the logical reasoning. And if you wow. Scroll, if you scroll down on any of those pages, you'll see exactly what you chose, what the right answer is, what the question type is. And then you see the R next to it. Yeah. So if you click on that R for any of the questions, it basically marks it for you to review later. Uh -huh. And so then if you eventually get to the review page, you'll see those there and you can take notes. And it doesn't tell you anything about the question, so you can do it again later and not be aware of what type it is or anything like that. Wow. That is fantastic. That is um, at, again, strategyprep.com slash tracker. That's right. Mm -hmm. It's a free account. It seems super useful. Um, our ad test. Okay, and right now you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve of the tests in there. Yeah, and I have the data, like 95% of the data for all the tests between test 19 and test 75. I'm just wow. perfecting, you know, filling in those gaps because I can't really add those tests until the data is 100% complete. But that's that's going to happen this week. Hopefully a lot more tests, at least between 52 and 75, will be added by the time this is posted. So. Man, wow. Yeah, that's awesome. I would love to uh, expose my current class to it. I got to think about a way that, you know, I could give, administer them the one, you know, the right test and then have them like as a homework assignment, go play around with this thing and yeah. use it. Yeah. I mean, assuming you would, you would want that just to get more users on it. Oh, sure. No, I'd love that. It'd be great. And maybe we can figure out a way for you to have access to that as well. So you can see the results. And uh, right now what I've started doing like with class and with one-on-one -on -one students is when people ask me a question, I'll log in, look at what they're doing. And then a lot of times I can look at their accuracy rates, which tell a very different story sometimes than their total points. So for example, I might be talking with someone and I'll click on their games and it will say that they got eight wrong in the games, which looks really bad compared to their other sections. But then I'll look at their accuracy rate and it will say, oh, they actually missed zero or one on the three games that they attempted. So that tells me something very different. It says, okay, you got to work on speed, but at least your accuracy is very good and you're in a good position when it comes to games. You just have to keep practicing. Whereas if I didn't see that accuracy rate, you know, I wouldn't know exactly. I would just ask them, but I wouldn't know so quickly that, hey, you need to focus a little bit more on developing your games because you're missing questions in the games that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I do something a little bit similar. I mean, I just use Google spreadsheets that cool. I share with my students yep. and I ask them to just count up how many they attempted. So I, get, I collect number correct and number attempted yeah. 
per yeah. section. Of course, this is doing a lot more than that, including categorizing the mistakes. So yeah, this seems like it has a lot of potential. Cool. Awesome. Strategyprep.com slash tracker. Check it out and then uh, send Ben your feedback, Ben at strategyprep.com. Looks like this thing will continue to get better and better. Yeah, well, I'll I'll definitely take uh, anyone's advice and yours in particular, Nathan, as well, about ways to make it better. Um, The goal, I just, it's kind of an ongoing project. So I'm just, when we have time, we work on it together and try to improve it. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, cool. Well, I think that might be it for today. Yeah, I think so. Thanks everybody for listening. Um, please tell a friend. We uh, we don't have an advertising budget here at Thinking LSAT Podcast, so we really only uh, get out there by people sharing it with a friend or family member. I got an email from somebody saying that they were in a car car ride with their parents and listening to the show (laughs) (laughs) and that the parents were digging it. Oh, so, uh, your parents are nerds and, um, good. That's good. Uh, but yeah, you know, um, rate us on iTunes, review us on iTunes, share a link on Facebook, um, and send us an email. We'd love to, um, help with whatever you're working on, on the LSAT. Cool. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you.